We have some game-changing announcements in Cleveland yesterday about bail reform and the future of tech. Let's get to it. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. We've got news to discuss. Let's discuss it. What did the Ohio Supreme Court have to say about bail reform and how will it help defendants in Cuyahoga County? Jane Cahoon, we launched in our newsroom five years ago on a Justice for All project to bring about bail reform. Uh, we got lots of county leaders and the courts and the county administration to all say they're going to do it. They started meeting. They've had endless meetings and they haven't done it except what the pandemic forced them to do. So where's the reform actually going to come from with the lameness of our leaders to get it done over five years? Well, the Ohio Supreme Court has done something that's going to further this cause of bail reform. They approved a couple of rule changes that, that take effect July 1st. One of them requires all 28 counties that have more than one municipal or county court, and that includes Cuyahoga County, to adapt what's called a, a uniform monetary bail schedule. So they, they all have to play by the same rules. And if the courts in a county can't agree on that uniform schedule, they're going to have to use a model bail schedule that the Supreme Court develops. And so this is designed to, to make sure each county's residents have you know, continuity and equal treatment across county courts on these bail issues. The other change is that counties are going to be required to establish as their first choice the release of a defendant on a non-monetary personal recognizance bond before even resorting to, to formal bail. As you said, you know, as, as we've reported over the recent years in justice, in the Justice for All project, the the cash bail system hurts low-income Ohioans who can't afford to bond out of jail while they await trial and they're presumed innocent. And as a result, they end up staying behind bars, sometimes, you know, for even minor crimes. They lose their jobs, they're away from their families, and it's just a destructive thing. So, and and bail reform, as you said, it's gotten a lot of support, both from liberal and conservative groups, even though things have have stalled in, in Cuyahoga County. Well, and, and look, I mean, it's shameful. I mean, it's shameful for the county prosecutor. It's shameful for the chief judges, John Russo and Brendan Sheehan. It's shameful for the county administration. They all said five years ago they were going to do it, and they were going to do it methodically, and they launched this big set. They never did it. I mean, we they finally let a bunch of people out of jail this year, last year, so that there wouldn't be a, a crisis with the pandemic inside the jail. But there's nothing institutionalized despite paying all the lip service. So I salute the Supreme Court for doing what our elected leaders just failed to do. And it's yet another example of of our leadership vacuum in Cuyahoga County because they just don't do it. The, The most important thing there is that they must make a priority of letting people go without money. And that's that's it. And when when we talk about how devastating it is, when you're held in jail, for days, you can lose your job. You can lose your kids. It affects your family life. It's devastating to people when when people with money get to walk free and they don't face any of those complications. It's one of the causes of multi-generation poverty. You cause people to remain in poverty by abusing them with this system. So it's big news. And Yeah. And the chief justice of Ohio, Maureen O'Connor, is a big supporter of this. So that's 
that's a good thing because obviously she's in charge of overseeing Ohio courts. And a year ago, the courts were instructed to to use at least what's called a least restrictive bond conditions, you know, and least amount of monetary bail. So that was already in place, but then this expands it further. And just one more note, since we're talking about the Supreme Court, Chief Justice O'Connor is going to be retiring. She's aging out. And two of the justices who have been reported to want to succeed her, that would be Pat DeWine and Sharon Kennedy, both voted against these latest rule changes. Apparently, they feel it violates the Ohio Constitution and usurps the legislature's authority to have oversight over decisions like that. So you want to get started on the legislature. Well, but any, we'll ha- anyway, we'll uh, have to make sure that everybody's aware of that when the election for the Supreme Court chief justice comes up, because this is a hell of a legacy for O'Connor to have. I mean, this is something that you can be proud of. And if the people wanting to succeed her want to go back to penalizing people for being poor, we'll, we'll need to point that out. That'll be the new way we go with justice for all. And, you know, and look, making the, the municipal courts have the same bond schedule makes a lot of sense. They ought to have the same fine schedule, as we pointed out there. There's yeah. a wide variety there, but at least bringing some uniformity to this patchwork of, of wacky courts we have makes a lot of sense. So good news. It's this week in the CLE. What is quantum computing? How does it compare to regular computing? And how could it change healthcare in the tech landscape in Northeast Ohio? Laura Johnston, the announcement by the Cleveland Clinic and IBM yesterday, 10 years from now, we could look back and say this was one of the biggest moments in economic development history for this area. Yeah, this could be a really big deal. This is a really fast, really powerful computer. And the deal that IBM has with the clinic is the first of its kind where IBM is actually putting a quantum computer in another space. They have some partnerships. They've never built one somewhere else before. So at first glance, a quantum computer resembles like a giant chandelier made of copper tubes and wires. So it it doesn't just look like your laptop. This computer is going to be called the Discovery Accelerator. It features artificial intelligence, hybrid cloud data storage, and quantum computing technologies. What that means is it crunches huge amounts of data at super high speeds. And instead of a regular computer that uses classical bits, which represent either a one or a zero, Quantum computers can use a combination of those, and it works on equations parallelly, well, as conventional machines do them sequentially. So that's why they're so much faster. Yeah, IBM has never built a quantum computer on a partner site. They've let partners come to their computers. The clinic clearly believes that it will be able to reduce what normally takes two or three years to research into minutes, mere minutes. Right. this will be a draw for, for anybody that's interested in the future of computing, knowing what's going on in Cleveland. Th- this could just attract all sorts of incubation of new companies. Clearly, the clinic believes so. This is a huge investment they're making, but, right. but it, it, it could be the game changer. Everybody keeps talking about what's the next innovation sector that Cleveland should invest in. Well, the clinic and the IBM might have just identified it. I uh, hope and- so, rather than just talking about it, you know, and talking about blockchain and all of this stuff, because I think of healthcare as people, right? Like patients and doctors and, you know, scientists in labs with microscopes. But this is a, the new future of healthcare where, like, they can do chemical simulations for finding new molecules for drug uses and understanding complex systems, sequencing genes and cancer cells, all sorts of things that 
you can't do by hand, obviously. You're not just doing with a microscope. And and the idea is, I guess it takes normally 17 years to come up with a therapy for something. And we just are in the middle still of a pandemic that obviously we got a vaccine much faster than we thought. But this could try to anticipate what comes next and have us be ready for it. Well, and we all wondered what would Tommy Mihalovic do when he replaced Toby Cosgrove as the head of the clinic? He just he just put down his stamp. Now, the downside is this will all help foster AI and computers will become overlords and wipe us out. But it's a big moment in Cleveland history. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Fraud is rampant in Ohio's unemployment system, but the state is supposed to have some checks and balances to make sure people who claim they're unemployed actually are, and it hasn't been working. Jane Cahoon, after literally months of trying to get an answer to this question, yesterday, we got it. What is it? (laughs) Well, basically, the system got too overwhelmed to do the proper vetting. That's the simplest explanation. Now, we found out about these problems through a number of readers who reached out to you, Chris, after you wrote about your own experience with with fraud. But these readers, some of them were employers, and they were just outraged that they had told the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services that that claims were bogus, like, hey, this person was not laid off or whatever. And then the department went ahead and paid on the claims anyway. One of them was a residential care facility in, based in Rocky River, and, and they found that some of their employees were targeted by, by scammers who had stolen their personal information and applied for unemployment benefits. And so they told the state that, that two of these claims were bogus, and later they were surprised to be told by the state that the claims were approved and the money was paid. So the standard procedure is supposed to be that whenever the state receives a claim for unemployment, the department is contacts the applicant's employer to make sure the claim is genuine before they issue the payments. But, you know, during this pandemic, ODJFS was swamped with unemployment claims, both real and fraudulent, and that system just kind of fell apart. The spokesman for ODJFS told us that at the height of the pandemic, the agency experienced a backlog so great that some claims did make their way through the application process before employer responses were read. However, he said that in the last several months, they put in multiple changes to to flag claims for fraud and not allow any payments before a claimant's identity has been verified. So, you know, you're going to have to watch your email box and your subtext account, Chris, to see if you hear any more of these types of reports, you know, because they they say this is really a priority now and it's a critical part of determining benefits for somebody. Well, I think Jeremy's going to hear from people. This was one where pe- the people I heard from, they're just confounded. It's like I got the notice and I told them that person never worked for me. It's not real. And then they get the notice it was paid and they, they were just, it was, what, what's the point of, of checking? And it, you know, it's, as Jeremy pointed out, sometimes they pay before the deadline passed. So it'll be interesting to see if he hears from people that say it's still happening or if he hears from people that are talking about before they got it under control, but it was rather remarkable. I mean, there's lots of fraud and this the whole system is under siege. And Mike DeWine has said to the federal government, we need your help here. You, you got to get involved in this. But this was a piece of the fraud that was very easy to deal right. with. And they weren't. The, the thing that the scammers were counting on is 
that if you're a small employer and you got notice of unemployment for somebody that never worked for you, the, the small employer might not do anything. Well, that person didn't work for me, so it's no, no problem for me. But there were a lot that did come back and say, nope, nope, nope. And then we're aghast to see the payments made anyway. Yeah. Good job by Jeremy. It took way too long for the state to come forward with information on that, but at least we have cleared it up. And I hope that satisfies all the readers that kept hitting me saying, when are you going to answer this question? <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. A year into the pandemic, how busy are Northeast Ohio contractors with home remodeling? Laura Johnston, we knew anecdotally this was something that a lot of people used the pandemic to do. They turned inward. They needed to because they were working from home. They might not have had an office. But uh, Cameron Fields went out and talked to a bunch. And wow, there's a lot going on. Yeah, we've got a couple of stories throughout the year about the DIY projects that people were doing. But this is the first story we really talked to contractors and the contractors are busy. We want to finish our attic and make a fourth bedroom and a second bathroom up there. We want to build a new garage. I tried calling a bunch of contractors. One said they'd call me back in 10 months. Others didn't return my calls. So it is, it is crazy busy and it is because people are stuck at home and they've seen the things they want to change. They want to make their house more useful for them. And maybe they saved some money by not traveling or not needing childcare. They have stimulus money. So the contractors are seeing a huge increase, something like a 40% increase in revenue, some of us told us. Also, one reason is that the housing market is so tight. So you can't just say, I'm just going to put this one on the market and buy a four bedroom because there's, there's nothing to buy. Also, lumber costs are very expensive. So it kind of all combines to this huge boom for remodelers. The supply chain is the second thing we have to work on because that we I, we have heard from a lot of people that they want to do remodeling, but they can't get the windows and the glass. Mm -hmm. And the, so we're going to come back on that. And furniture, I guess, is impossible. Right. So right if you now. do get your remodel done, like good luck furnishing it. <laughs> yeah, we're we're going to come back on that because, we've. I mean, actually, I put a note out about it yesterday in subtext. And Laura, I sent you a bunch of the responses for whoever the reporter is. But. There were a whole lot of people that had anecdotal information about that, and people were waiting a long time. Anyway, uh, check out Cameron's story online. It's all about the uh, backup in renovations. It's this week in the CLE. Jobs Ohio is using $50 million to take a stake in startup companies that helps. So, Jane Cahoon, how is this not turning Jobs Ohio into a venture capital fund? Because they claim it's not. Well, it, it's basically a venture capital type operation. At least it's a similar approach in, you know, it's a type of private investing that makes bets on small companies, hoping that the stakes become more valuable after the company grows. So they say this fits with their whole economic development goal, but they, they're not establishing a venture capital fund per se. And, and these companies aren't going directly to Jobs Ohio to ask for the money Jobs Ohio is going to turn to local organizations like Jumpstart in Cleveland to, to come up with deals and, and develop the terms of these deals. So what they're doing, as you said, it's 50 million bucks this year, and they're going to take ownership stakes in startup companies. And, you know, they say this promotes innovation and that can lead to economic development. They're going to focus on Ohio companies that previously have attracted private investment that fall into certain industries like healthcare and technology. And those are strategic priorities for Jobs Ohio. And in any particular deal, they're not going to contribute more than 20% of funding. So they're not going to have like a major 
ownership stake. But what they're doing does push the legal boundaries because the Ohio Constitution bans the state from owning private businesses. But just to remind people, Jobs Ohio was established under former Governor John Kasich as a private organization, even though it was created to fulfill essentially a government function of economic development. So they say that that ban doesn't apply to them because they're they're private. But, you know, their board members are appointed by the governor and the, the board with the governor's input hires the CEO. And Jobs Ohio is funded through profits from the state's liquor monopoly. And that brought in around $300 million last year during record alcohol sales. So, you know, this could be a little controversial. It could be controversial. But on the other hand, what we were doing with economic development was not working. And and if they come up with this method of generating more revenue that must be used for public purposes, I mean, they pay their people a lot of money, but that they can't take profits. There's nobody that they pay it back to. They've got to reinvest it. That's interesting. You're always suspicious of, <laughs> of these kind of changes in government when this kind of money is involved. On the other hand, if if they're investing in startup companies that, that could become major employers in Ohio, th- this is a novel approach. It'd be interesting to see how it goes. They, they have started taking ownership stakes. I mean, that, that's something that was new last year with the companies that got in trouble with the coronavirus. So there there could be a thing. Anyway, we've got to move on. It's this week in the CLE. I should take a moment to point out there was an email that went out to a lot of people this morning saying Frank Jackson has announced he's running for a fifth term. And apparently that's false. That's not true. Just want to say that because otherwise I think we'd be talking about it. Let's move on. We hear a lot about the digital divide with all the work on it this year from school districts, nonprofits and city government. Is the Internet access getting more equitable? Laura Johnston, we got a small step to talk about. Yes, there is still a huge gap, though. And Pete Krause wrote this story. And I feel like we get a news release every week that's like, you know, new Internet coming to this area. And and it sounds like there's a lot happening. And there is, but still long way to go. So Digital C, which is a nonprofit devoted to bringing broadband to low-income households in Cleveland, now has 950 households that they serve. That's up from 80 last year. But obviously, that's not a huge amount. About a third of Cleveland residences still don't have broadband service that's either affordable or accessible. Neighboring East Cleveland is way worse. 60 to 80 percent lacks the service. And the estimate from Digital C is it's going to take $40 million more in upfront money to make a serious dent in this divide. And there's all sorts of organizations working on it. There's a group called the Greater Cleveland Digital Equity Coalition that includes a whole lot of local foundations and other groups. City Council hired a consultant. CMSD, the Cleveland Schools, has been handing out hotspots. But this is a problem, even though we've written a lot about it and heard a lot about it, that we are not near solving. The money that the state is getting out of the stimulus, Mike DeWine has said he wants to use some of that to bridge that digital divide. So if he were to invest in companies like Digital C, they could get to more neighborhoods. I mean, 18 bucks a month for broadband access is a great deal. Right. Many of us that pay for, for high-speed internet to do our jobs. We're paying a lot more than that. That's a great way to get people involved. So if Mike DeWine lives up to his promise to provide for the places that need it, he'll invest that in the cities as well as the rural areas. We'll have to see how much of that money goes to companies like Digital C and how much goes for laying it in 
places right. that are much more sparsely and, populated. Yeah, you've got to figure that the you know in like a, an urban area like Cleveland is going to be a lot cheaper per household or apartment, you know, than the people who live on farms miles and miles apart from each other. So, but it's proven this pandemic has proven that we really need internet access for school, for work, and that this has been one you know unequitable part that the the pandemic has shown. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who declared candidacy Tuesday to replace Marcia Fudge? And what makes this candidate different from all of the many other candidates who are running? Jane Cahoon, is this a cynical ploy to get get through the race? I don't necessarily think so. Uh, Old people like me will, will probably remember this guy from when he was a state rep and he tried to run for governor in 2006 and, and failed. But he hasn't really been prominent any time recently in politics. His name's Brian Flannery. He's an Akron Democrat who's originally from Lakewood. And he's different because he's the only white candidate in the Democratic primary to succeed former Congresswoman Marsha Fudge. This is the state's lone majority black district, and it's been represented by really prominent, well-known black leaders like Louis Stokes, Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, and of course, Marsha Fudge. But Flannery said that if I thought that any other candidate running for this seat could do a better job representing the constituents of the 11th Congressional District, I wouldn't run. Now, he's talking about, you know, six other, you know, many of them prominent people who are who are in the Democratic primary. But he said he's not focusing this campaign on the demographics. He's going to focus on black voters, white voters, Asian voters, Hispanics, gay and lesbian, union and non-union workers. And then he said he made sort of a veiled reference to, I think, former state Senator Nina Turner by saying, I'm not running for Congress to join a squad. So he's, you know, referring to this group of young liberal Congress people that, you know, are commonly associated with AOC. He said, I'm, I'm running to be a member of Team Biden. I want to make sure we help and protect, uh, help protect and represent the people of the district. So let me just say here, his chances are, are really slim given the history of this district and the demographics. And as I said, there are seven candidates now in this primary, including top tier people like Nina Turner and Cuyahoga County Councilwoman Chantel Brown and, you know, former state legislators like Shirley Smith and, and Jeff Johnson and, and, John Barnes and yeah, except it, it, I mean, it's, but th- there's other candidates. I mean, this is a race between Nina Turner and Chantel Brown. Right. The only reason that that Chantel Brown is is the leading contender is because she's the head of the party machine, and a whole lot of people who are afraid of Nina Turner are championing her. But Nina Turner is racking up endorsements. She got City Councilman Blaine Griffin yesterday, who's likely to be the next council president. Mayor Frank Jackson came out today and endorsed her. She just see, and she's got money. She's got a lot of money. It seems like this is Nina Turner's to lose, and that this candidacy, e- even though I'm not as sure as you are that it's not a cynical, let me try and get the white vote kind of thing, it won't work. I think I really don't see how Nina Turner can lose this at this point because of the traction she's getting. I mean, you're, you're not really hearing much from the other candidates at all, but we hear about. Nina Turner quite a bit. Right. And I think, as you mentioned, this Blaine Griffin endorsement is important because it kind of chips away at at some of the notions people have about Nina Turner as somebody, you know, who doesn't have institutional support 
or like a Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders kind of a thing with with, you know, between her and Chantel Brown. But, you know, Blaine Griffin was an early endorser of Joe Biden, and he's a major player in Democratic politics. So, you know, there goes that argument. And and Frank Jackson. Frank Jackson basically said, right. look, she supports all the causes that we care about. You know, and she was a big supporter of Frank Jackson's school transformation plan. And she took a lot of heat for it and stood by him. But, you know, she the people are trying to say she's a radical because she says things like Medicare for all. Well, there are a whole lot of people that want that. So I I, especially in that district, the effort to make her sound like some radical nut job, you know, by by using terms like the squad are are pure politics. She's she's got the medal. She's paid the dues. She's done the work. And and she has a vision for helping people who are in need. So it's going to be interesting to see, but I think this is running away. The only thing that might change it is that Mike DeWine scheduled that election so late. We would originally thought it would be in the spring, but now it's in late summer. Not until August 3rd, I believe, is the primary. Yeah. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Could Ohio college students get vaccinated before leaving for their summer break? Laura Johnston, this would help stem the spread when they start moving around the country and going home, how would it happen? Well, it might only happen if they can get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, because there's not too much of spring left. And all sorts of colleges change their schedules around to try to mitigate spring break and the spread of COVID. So some of them aren't even coming back to school after spring break. Definitely don't have like five weeks to, to make this all work. So the discussions are ongoing between Governor Mike DeWine and college presidents, but nothing's been decided yet. My take is there's nothing stopping them from signing up wherever they want at this point in Ohio. All adults can get the vaccine. But I guess there is a question, you know, some of them are not full-time residents of Ohio. But yeah, they could go to a, if they can get an appointment and some of these schools are in rural areas, I would go try right now. Yeah, and you don't need to be a full-time resident of Ohio. Mike DeWine himself said it doesn't bother him if people come in from other states because our residents have gone to other states to get it themselves. And he thought we were actually benefiting from that situation. Yeah, so we'll have to see. I, I would assume that these kids would and their parents would really like to get the vaccine. All right, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is going on with the Rocky River teachers? First, there was a police investigation of a very awkward conversation, video of a conversation between two teachers that made it out into the public. But then the police closed the investigation. Now the police have reopened the investigation. Why? Yeah, I I wish I could tell you why. I think there's a lot of parents in Rocky River who wish they knew why. Two teachers, as you talked about, recorded on a Zoom video talking about a female student and an alleged photo of her taken by another teacher. And they have a fairly long conversation that a kid recorded on the other end of the Zoom. Obviously, they didn't know they were still broadcasting. Ended up with six teachers under investigation. Police closed it. Now they reopened it. There's this talk about a picture. But according to one police report, the photo in question was a doctored shot of Leave it to Beaver's June Cleaver. So take your imagination there and that there wasn't a student photo found. I don't know if they found something else or where it stands, but it is the talk of the town in Rocky River. Yeah, we'll have to see what what they come up with, because if there wasn't a picture, those guys talk like there's an actual picture that would would border on or be, be child pornography, depending on the age of the, the student. And 
and if that photo exists, you got to think, okay, that would be a crime. But but if what you're saying is that that it was some cartoon the guy drew and purported to be a picture, it, it's it's really not what you want in your teacher ranks. No. But it wouldn't be a crime. It's remarkable that we've had in two of the top districts in the state, in Solon and Rocky River, some alarming alarming adult behaviors. With the, with Absolutely. And even if there is nothing illegal here, there has been so much discussion about the offensiveness. You know, even the superintendent had a video said he's disgusted at what is going on and the way that these t- teachers were talking about students. And it's just, it's formulated some debate about, you know, how teachers treat students, what's going on. And there are people back and forth saying they did not, that these two teachers on the video who are just discussing, they're, as far as I know, not accused of doing anything wrong other than not telling what they knew about a photo. Well, um, but, although they, the, some of the stuff they said right. was icky. I mean, no, I, it, it is icky. Absolutely. You don't want to hear the words like that coming out of teachers' mouths about the students they're entrusted with. What's sad about this is that I think teachers came out of the pandemic with a whole lot of admiration from the public because of what they went through. And then this kind of behavior tarnishes them. And it's unfair because it's a handful of people doing really awful things. But we'll have to see whether there's an actual crime. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for another episode. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode.